Today's Tribcast is presented by the Holdsworth Center and Pearson. The Holdsworth Center presents Elevated, Education and the Economy, on June 4th at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Register now at holdsworthcenter.org. And Pearson. Pearson is inspired by dreams. We're working with the Hispanic Heritage Foundation to honor Texas parents who help their children dream big and reach great heights. Texas talking. What was that that you said? Texas talking. Gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas guys I'm Lillian Salerno, Democratic candidate for Congressional District 32. Special hello to the TripCast listeners. That can bring me either money or votes. The rest of you, of course, are dead to me. And now here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, March 14th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly podcast on the biggest stories in Texas politics. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. And criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough. Hello. We'll be joined in a few minutes by a special guest, GOP political consultant Tyler Norris, who's waiting in the wings for you. And we'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so please start sending them our way. Uh, All right, Julie, I want to start with you. There's been so much attention after primary night on statewide races, on House and Senate races, on congressional races, but we heard a lot less talk about another set of races where there was some pretty high drama, and that was district attorney races. I think the last numbers you told me were that seven of 13 sitting Texas DAs who had primary challengers lost their races. Is that unusual or is that emblematic of some other change that's afoot? Uh, Well, that really depends on who you're talking to. Um, The Texas District and County Attorneys Association, um, after the story, put out some numbers based on, like, self-reporting data that, you know, primaries are generally more challenging for, uh, you know, contested seats and district attorneys than general elections, and that there is generally a turnover of of about, you know, he said that you're expecting about 12 to 15 new DAs. Uh, this cycle. Um, that would include retiring DAs, which there are quite a few. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people who are saying this is kind of a sign of what's to come. There's a lot more interest lately in uh, district attorney races and in these down ballot races, and people are kind of, there's this push to get people more aware of what your, you know, local offices can do for you and how they have more of an effect on, like, your day-to-day life than the higher than a statewide might. I mean, I want to talk specifically about a couple of these races, starting with Nico LaHood, the Bear County DA, who uh, it took me a moment to realize that he he was a Democrat and lost the Democratic primary. So what was all the sort of drama and intrigue behind his race? Yeah, so Nico LaHood is definitely a a unique character. He came in... (laughs) So (laughs) diplomatic. (laughs) He came in... um, as a Democrat, he kind of came in as a ref- like the reformer, um, and he has done some things, like he's implemented a conviction integrity unit, um, but he's had a lot of controversy over just you know his own beliefs. He has come out with uh, anti-Islamic remarks. He's publicly a friend of Sid Miller. <laughs> <laughs> he publicly stated that you know vaccines cause autism. Um, also not a traditional Democratic Party line, not even right. really a Republican right. party. Not, not a scientific has, line. Yeah. Right. He actually has, like, you know, like, Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick are really, like, upset about this and kind of advo- advocating for him. So mm-hmm. he definitely is an unusual Democrat. 
Uh, and then there was the McClellan County DA, uh, Abel Reyna, who's a Republican. Um, he has not been very far from the headlines either, but for a very different reason. Yeah, so he, this was another big DA case. Um, he really, the, his downfall was the Twin Peaks shooting in Waco um, in 2015. Uh, he just really got slammed for how he handled that. They, you know, arrested and put on high bond like over 175 of those bikers um, and pretty much just went after all of them um, and, and to try to tamp down this biker gang activity. And it turned out that, I mean, they only ended up pressing charges and Yeah, I mean, he's already dis he's dismissed or rejected um, about a third of those cases already. Uh, so. yeah, due process got in his way. You know, <laughs> yeah, it, right. it used to be, you know, for years and years and years, it was true that if you were a DA in Texas, it was almost impossible to knock you off. And they and they did all kinds of things that, you know, were later proved unacceptable. You know, the overturned convictions from Henry Wade's Dallas County mm -hmm. DA and Johnny B. Holmes' Harris County DA and, you know, uh, the Williamson County stuff with Henry Lee Lucas over the years. And it was really hard, even in spite of controversy and things like the stuff that got um, – <clears throat> Waco's DA and San Antonio's DA, even things like that didn't knock you out of office. What's really new here is that, you know, they're people more accountable so to voters than they've been yeah, for a I long, mean, long time. And that's what you're hearing from a lot of people. They're saying, like, uh, incumbency isn't as safe as it used to be. Right. Um, I mean, some people debate if that's true, but, you know, you're seeing, you know, both uh, Nico LaHood and Abel Reyna unseated pretty, like, long-time DAs, and right. they were both outed. You know, Nico served only one term, and Abel served two. Right. Um, so... Interesting. We have a comment from um, William on uh, social media. I'm from Victoria, and I backed a DA challenger, and she won. It really drove voter turnout to record numbers in Victoria County. People were ready for a change. So that's right. an interesting take. Um, Jolie, I think one of the most fascinating through lines we've seen in your reporting has been the outsized role of a major liberal donor uh, who we're used to seeing sort of more in political races. Um, who was it, and what was his motivator? Yeah, so George Soros um, spent almost a million dollars uh, on Nico LaHood's uh, Democrat, you know, his primary opponent. Disclosure, donor to the Texas Tribune. Right. Oh, and right. many other people. Right. See, I don't even know that. That's how. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he... He's been, over the last couple of years, like in the last election two in 2016, he's been really giving a lot of money to these local DA races. Like he's part of this push to, you know, his whole thing is to transform the criminal justice system from the bottom up. Um, and he's given to a bunch of people in different cities. Um, he doesn't always win. He also gave to the Democratic candidate challenger in Dallas and that of two uh, Democrats in the primary this this recently and they uh, his backer loss mm -hmm. Patrick you're gonna say what is the method I mean I know this but I feel like this you know the idea of George Soros's influence in Texas elections gets uh, bandied about so much it's worth kind of going into the details what, what is the method in which he invests in these races it's through a political action committee, yeah right? so he has a bunch of political action committees like in different states and right. he just you know funnels it, a bunch of money yeah and he's them. the chief donor to them <clears throat> yeah and how much uh, you mentioned that in Bear County he invested I think a million dollars I mean uh, that's a lot of money I think to anyone how much does that how much is that within the scale and the context of a county DA's race in Texas? Yeah, well, that's a lot of money for a local <laughs> DA's race. Yeah. I mean, granted, it's San Antonio, and Nico was actually surprisingly able to get a bunch of money. I think he raised over, like, close to 400000 mm -hmm. Um, But that, you know, doesn't right. still doesn't come close. And, you know, in DA races, the other ones I'm looking at, like, there's, 
maybe a hundred thousand, but it's right. not a lot of money. I think, and that was one of the things uh, Dan Patrick brought up on a radio show that like this is like someone coming in and spending ten million dollars in a statement. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, LaHood actively campaigned at least toward the end against Soros as kind of an outsider here in, in our county. Yeah, I mean, and that's right. it's a valid argument. There's you know someone coming in and just dumping a ton of money. Um, it's kind of hard. you can't really compete with that. Like. Yeah. If so he makes for DA. a bipartisan boogeyman in some right. in some cases. It's, you know, and it's in, the other interesting thing about this is Soros is one of several um, donors and political action committees that that have jumped into local races. You know, they're coming into uh, DA races in this case. Empower Texans Pack and some others are getting involved in local school board races and local city council races. You know, they're they're filtering down to the um, you know, if nothing else, the farm teams for state and for national politics. This is where, you know, members of the legislature, members of Congress, governors, and, and people like that come from. Well, we're going to talk about all of those candidates in a moment. Thank you so much, Jolie, yeah. for joining us. We're going to be joined now by Tyler Norris, GOP political consultant. Uh, and while we're waiting for Tyler to come up here and join us, I just want to remind you that if you're listening on iTunes, we'd love it if you left us a review. Here's a good one from Tommy75. I live in Seattle, Washington, but was born and raised in South Texas. I listen to this podcast to keep up with the political climate in my home state. All right, guys, tell us about the political climate in our home state. Starting with, uh, I heard you guys talking just a couple of minutes ago. We'll clue our audience in. What are the hottest primaries we should be watching for in the runoffs? Uh, you know, there's a bunch of them. There's 30-plus primaries, um, and they're all, you know, to, to the people in them, they're the hottest. Each of them is in <laughs> right. the hottest primary, right? <laughs> right. Uh, to two, us, which are the hottest yeah, primaries. Two that are, you know, a little bit unexpected. Um, there's two legislators in primary runoffs um, who are incumbents. Renee Oliveira, who's been in the legislature for a long, long time, um, had somebody sneak up on him, Alex uh, I can't remember his last name all of a sudden. Dominguez, uh, I think. Dominguez. Alex D. Uh, yeah, Alex Dominguez <laughs> uh, kept him from 50%, so that's a runoff. Uh, Scott Cosper, who's a sophomore rep, uh, he's just finishing his first term. Uh, it's a little less unusual, but he's in a runoff. Um, and then there's runoffs, you know, in a lot of those congressional races. You know, the congressional races that opened up, there were eight seats this time. And some of them, the, it was like congressman for life. Like Lamar Smith has been there for three decades, and the pent-up demand in that district was incredible. Twenty, um, More than 20 candidates ran in the two primaries. We're down to four now. That'll be hard fought. You know, those sort of are littered around. The top of the ballot primary runoff is going to be the Democratic governor's race. Tyler, tell us where the sweatiest brows are among the GOP. Well, CD21 was definitely an interesting result to have two people considered on the right make the runoff. I, I think that was my guess, was that it was going to be Chip Roy and Matt McCall. So uh, the political establishment, I think, especially in San Antonio, has an interesting choice to make now. Uh, McCall is obviously closer to them. Uh, Chip Roy is from Austin, but... Uh, Man, that's a tough choice for, <laughs> for, I think, the center of the party. I think they'll probably go with Roy, and I think he'll win that primary pretty handily. Or they'll they could cross over. I guess if they, they would they would have had to vote in the right. Democratic primary to begin with. So they're kind of they're kind of stuck in that regard. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, all right, well, we're just a week out from the primaries, obviously, which means that we're already thinking about the general. Uh, I'd like to take inventory of the races that are, we think are the most interesting and competitive ahead of November. And obviously, I think, Ross, this was your line, but the most interesting race may not be the most competitive, and that's the U.S. Senate matchup between Beto O'Rourke and uh, Ted Cruz, where right now the squabbling is really over whose name is the most Hispanic. 
Yeah, Who's Robert and Raphael banging it out. Um, <laughs> right. It's you know it's a fascinating race just because they're both attention grabbing, you know, charismatic politicians. Ted Cruz is unpopular with Democrats, but he's very popular with Republicans. So there's a natural you know sort of frisson there. And Beto O'Rourke has been drawing crowds. He didn't get the numbers that the, a lot of the Democrats thought he would. I think he got 61 percent and change right. in the first round. But he's the nominee, and these are the two most it's sort of like the two most interesting people on the ticket right now. The governor's race may get more interesting. One of these down ballot races could get interesting, but right now walking into it, the, the race that seems to turn the most heads is the, is the U.S. Senate race. Tyler, I saw um, on Twitter this morning one of the Castro brothers, uh, I'm not sure which, saying basically you should be paying attention to what happened in Pennsylvania last night because that's a really good sign for Texas's Senate race. Thoughts there? So why isn't Castro on the ballot? Then, if he's that <laughs> you know, I thought about asking that question, actually. Then I figured I better stand down. Well, <laughs> no, it's, it's actually an interesting question. Right. If it was that great a year, uh, you would have jumped in, right? I think there was a hashtag started last night on, on Twitter uh, called Keyboard Castro. I think it's a pretty good started one. by you. I know, yeah. by Tyler Norris, Incorporated. I, I think if he was that confident, he would have gotten on the ballot somewhere this time, and he didn't. Uh, so you have got some color-coded maps in front of you. Do you want to tell us about them? Well, sure. I want to ask the Wendy Davis question. I mean, I know you guys probably talked about this last week. Is but she why on the ballot? Is that no, no. I mean, we're trying to put her on there. But why did he do 17? tried that in Houston. Yeah. Why did he, uh, yeah. why did he uh, do 17 points worse than what was seen as a disaster for Wendy Davis in the Democrat primary? He lost all over the place, the border, southeast Texas, the panhandle. Why such a bad result? Patrick, why such I a bad result? I mean, I Quote, saw unquote, that, bad result. I saw that Cruz and some other Republicans were, were saying this is because his platform and his agenda were outright, you know, rejected or not as popular in some of these these areas. And there may be some some truth to that. But I think it's, at this point, it's still more of a function of him just not being well known enough statewide, um, despite all the campaigning, despite all the national media attention and, and state media attention. Um, I think that that is still a struggle for him. And you, you've seen in the few public polls over the past year that he's chipping away at that number, that he's getting a little better known, but he still has a long way to go. I'd be interested in, in Ross's thoughts. Yeah, you know, this is the El Paso complaint. My hometown has never elected a statewide official, so that's the chip on our shoulder. He did good for an El Paso boy. Um, you know, the argument here Takes is, one to no one. Yeah, yeah, the argument here for the Democrats is that he got the nomination and the 39% who voted for someone else are unlikely to vote for Republicans. If they can turn them out, they'll be voters. I mean, you've got a smaller version, but an interesting version of the same question on the lieutenant governor's race on the Republican side. You have a sitting incumbent who's one of the best known arch conservative Republicans in Texas, and 24% of his own primary voters voted against Dan Patrick. So, but at the end of the day, you know, those people are gonna vote for the Republican in the race. You know, uh, Scott Milder's pleased to vote for Mike Collier notwithstanding, I, you know, I, I think the primary voters come around. I wonder who was uh, advising uh, Milder on that. I mean, from a political strategy standpoint, what a complete disaster. If you're trying to set up kind of this loyal Republican opposition that uh, pays more attention to public schools, right. that kind of thing, right. for the loser of the lieutenant governor primary to endorse the Democrat the next day, that's really going to offend a lot of Republican women who maybe had voted for Scott Milder, who right. people in the panhandle who voted for Scott Milder, they're still tribal Republicans, let me tell you what. And for them to endorse the Democrat, there's a lot of egg on a lot of faces in that one. I don't, I don't doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Ross, you mentioned you had a column uh, speaking specifically to this issue of the lieutenant governor and the percentage of the vote that he, the Republican primary vote he got. Do you think he saw it coming? I mean, he was out spending more money campaigning, you know. He spent over $6 million. Milder spent under $100,000. And, I, I, you know, Dan Patrick's numbers are pretty good in the polling that we've done with the University of Texas. Uh, they're not as strong as the governors and as Ted Cruz's, but they're strong. And, you know, he's, he's popular in the party. He did get 76% in the primary, but I think they saw something that, you know, said there might be a no vote. And I think it probably went back to some of the session stuff, some of the fighting over bathrooms and some other issues during the legislative mm -hmm. session. Well, uh, switching to the U.S. Congress, to the U.S. House, um, Patrick, there are Three races in particular. Sorry about that background noise, folks. Um, Patrick, there are three congressional races in particular that we're, we've been looking at really closely for the general, where there's possible there's a, a switcheroo there. What are those races? Yes, yeah, so that's the 23rd, um, which is currently held by Republican Will Hurd. These are all Republican-held Will Hurd. That's the one that's usually targeted every right. cycle by the national and parties. that's the only one really considered a swing district, Sure, sure. Right? The, two, the right. two main new additions this time are the 7th, which is held by John Culperson in the Houston area, and then you have the 32nd held by Pete Sessions in the Dallas area. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the runoffs, one of the dynamics in all three of those races to watch is that the runoff pairings were somewhat unexpected. Um, as we've noted before, uh, some of the top raising, top spending candidates in those primaries didn't even make the runoff. It was really devastating night for them. And so that led to some, again, somewhat unexpected runoff pairings. In the seventh, you have Laura Moser versus Lizzie Fletcher. Um, Laura Moser was the candidate who the, you know, DCCC came out against in the final days before the race, and it, it clearly didn't work out in their favor if their goal no, was to keep her out of the right. runoff. Nothing raises your name idea. <laughs> right. right. Democratic like the primary going after National you. Democrats calling yeah. you too liberal. Right. In, in, the 23rd, in the 23rd runoff, you have Gina Ortiz-Jones, who was right. expected to make the runoff, and then you have Rick Trevino, who uh, was, at least from, from where I was sitting, not expected to make the runoff. Um, he is a kind of unapologetic Bernie Sanders supporter, has been campaigning uh, vigorously on a lot of those ideas, and so that can make for an interesting dynamic. And then in the 32nd, you have uh, runoff between Colin Allred and Lillian Salerno, and again, they were both kind of leading candidates in the primary, um, but if you had to bet on who would have made the runoff, it probably wouldn't have been that exact pairing. And so you have some, ex uh, some unexpected matchups in those three runoffs now. And so what do those unexpected matchups mean potentially? I mean, does that mean that you don't necessarily have the you know, strongest Democratic candidate you perceived going into this running against the Republican? I mean, what? Sure. I mean, so you end up with some candidates who, if the conventional wisdom is that, you know, you need to nominate the more moderate Democrat, you have some candidates who can throw a wrench in that. Obviously, the, D the DCCC viewed Laura Moser as too liberal for the district, uh, or at least National Democrats viewed her as too liberal for the district, and that was part of probably their thinking of trying to keep her out of the runoff. Um, and then in the 23rd, uh, Rick Trevino, again, I mean, this is somebody who is completely um, open and unapologetic about campaigning on a lot of the ideas that Bernie Sanders did in 2016. And so, again, if the conventional wisdom is you need to nominate the more moderate Democrat to win in November, he is someone who could throw a wrench in that plan as well. Um, the ideological lines in the 32nd between Salerno and Allred may be a, a little harder to discern, but you can right. at least see them in, in 7th and, and the 23rd. Mm -hmm. um, question coming in on social media. Um, any impact of the ruling, the SB4 um, ruling this week on the general election? I mean. Might we see anything in the sort of months to come? I think it's a little early to tell. I mean, it depends on how the state um, enforces and uh, puts that law into effect and what the public reaction, if there is any public reaction to that is. You know, I mean, 
now that the law is sort of affirmed, the state's going to go enforce it. And if the enforcement raises some hackles, that's going to be political. And if it doesn't, you know, it'll just be a, another thing going on. I, I want to go back really quickly to this idea of running against these Republican seats, the Culberson seat and the Sessions seat. These are all Democratic bets that Donald Trump's going to have a lousy midterm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so far we don't have a very good sign, at least in Texas, that he's going to have a lousy midterm. It was a really good night for incumbents. It didn't seem to hurt anybody to hug Donald Trump in that race, in, in any of those races. And unless that turns, you know, unless Texas becomes like Pennsylvania or something, unless that turns, um, I think these are going to be um, pretty tough races for Democrats to win. So why is Texas so different from a state like Pennsylvania or from, you know, a state like Florida, a conservative state that's having all these, you know, gun control conversations? Why? When, for people, Democrats who see sort of glimmers of hope nationally, how do you tamp that down in Texas? Well, it's a different, well, you just said it, it's a different state, a very diverse economy that has a tech sector, an oil sector, financial sector, all that kind of stuff. And so it just kind of spreads out the way, the angle you take to try to win a race. There's no one particular thing you can go after. Um, on SB4, I think the result is both sides crow about the result to their base, and both sides raise money off the base. So maybe the net effect is zero. We'll see how the enforcement question goes. Um, but I think that's kind of a, a net neutral. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I want to talk about the legislature. Uh, but first, I want to thank another TribCast sponsor, the Texas Exes. Join the Texas Exes for their March lunchtime lecture as Antonella Del Fattore Olson presents her lecture on the beauty and reality of Rome. Learn more at TexasExes.org. All right, let's look at the Texas legislature. I think, Ross, you wrote uh, this week that the closest thing to a swing seat in the state Senate is Connie Burton's, which, true confession, is a former employer of Tyler's. Uh, what do you think the likelihood is there that that seat... Well, he left. Saw it coming. Yeah, that was, that was such a layup. It, you know, it's, it's a Republican seat, but it's not a strongly Republican seat, and it's one of those seats that I've got on my list of if Trump has a bad year or... If you know some of these local issues pop up, Connie Burton could have a race. Uh, she got the Democrat that she probably least wanted. There were two in the primary. Uh, Beverly Powell, who won, is probably the stronger of the two in a matchup with Burton. You agree with that? It's it's Burton's to lose, I think. But I mean, definitely not a strong Republican seat, but I would definitely say no bias here. A strong Republican candidate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did her campaign before I worked in the state office and nobody's going to put more work in than her and yeah. so I think she's connected well with the district already but obviously like you said a lot of it has to do with the national atmosphere mm -hmm. so we'll see. Right. Mm -hmm. right. uh, and then uh, there are two other state senate seats that could be at play but for different reasons. Uh, Garcia and Uresti. Tell us what the deal is there. Well you know Garcia is all but elected to Congress and you know so elected to Congress that everybody's declaring for that seat. Ana right. Hernandez is in, uh, Carol Alvarado is in, I think a couple of others are uh, kicking the tires on that. Um, these don't come up very often. Sylvia looks like she's headed for, the senator looks like she's headed for Jean Green's seat in Congress. Um, and then there's a seat to replace her. There's a question about whether when? she will yeah. leave early. You know, is she so sure that she's going to win that seat that she'll leave early? She's not on the ballot for Senate this year, so if she were to somehow fumble this and lose the congressional race and doesn't resign, she's still a senator for two more years. But if she decides to leave early, then she could force a special election, and that might be an interesting prospect, because that means that anybody in the legislature can run for her seat without giving up their, their own mm -hmm. seats. Right. It's a different kind of math. Um, 
I'm sure she's getting a lot of phone calls on that. <laughs> Ironically, there's a Republican primary runoff for that right. Right. <laughs> congressional right. seat, so the Republicans haven't settled on their, their nominee yet. And then there's Uresti. Yeah, Uresti, Uresti, you know, that's, that's been the joke. He's, <laughs> oh. His headlines were so bad, his brother lost his race, Tomas mm -hmm. Uresti. Who didn't do anything except see his, you know, brother except in the headlines. Genetically linked to, yeah. Yeah, he, you know, uh, it poisoned the ballot name. So, but Carlos remains a senator. He's not on the ballot this year. He's been convicted on 11 federal counts related to securities fraud and some other things, and is uh, talking about appealing those. He's talking to the prosecutors. I'm sure uh, his wife has left him. It's a giant legal dumpster fire, and he's he's got a bunch of stuff to sort out. But one of the things that's getting sorted out there is who would succeed him. Roland Gutierrez has jumped into that race with both feet, um, getting endorsements, making declarations, raising money as if Oresti had already dropped out. Pete Gallego has talked about it but hasn't jumped. Uh, some others probably are kicking tires. Phil Cortez has been talked about. Um, the former sheriff in Bear County, Susan Parmelo, was talked about as a Republican candidate. She's not going to do it, but I would imagine that the Republicans will throw somebody into this. I expect we're going to have a couple of special elections pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And then let's talk about the dynamics of power in the House. Patrick, so are we expecting, no matter what happens, uh, are we expecting to see any real shift in the House as far as the sort of structure of Republicans versus Democrats? In the State House? Yes. Well, I think that Democrats have some good pickup opportunities, several good pickup opportunities in November. Uh, right now, Republicans have a huge majority, 95 Republicans, 55 Democrats. Don't expect control of the uh, Texas House to flip. Um, but there are certainly a number of seats that are up for grabs um, in uh, November. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we saw from Tuesday night, not too unexpectedly, was that the, the stronger Democratic nominees, I think, candidates prevailed in, in most of these cases. And so now the table is set for those those matchups in November. And so if Democrats do take a, a, a several or a few seats in the House, what does any of this mean for the dynamic in the Speaker's race? Um, question from Andrew. Will Texas State House Republicans actually hold to their pledge to elect the Speaker in their caucus vote, especially if Democrats gain seats? Thoughts? We'll see. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that they're legally bound to do it. They didn't write the contract in blood. So if a politician can find a way to wiggle out of something, they will. Um, and I think, I'm not going to say who, but I have 15 names here written on a sheet of paper that I think those people are vulnerable in November on the Republican side, depending on the national atmosphere. So you think yeah. up to 15 Republicans are vulnerable? I thought you were going to say you had 15 speaker candidates. I thought you were going to say you had speaker well, candidates. I mean, so I was like, give me the list. <laughs> candidates. 149 speaker candidates, yeah. right. But what we can't forget is we're eight years today uh, out from a census. We don't know exactly right. who lives in all of these districts. I mean, I think it was it was dangerous that Cosper got into a runoff in that House seat because that House seat could flip to Democrat, and we'll never know about it until election night in That's November. Right. right. Um, so I think it's it's a lot more people who are on the bubble than we think, and mm -hmm. it depends on how popular the president is. But for every Republican you lose in November, the speaker's race changes pretty dramatically. Would you like to list your 15 Republicans would, who might be in trouble? I would absolutely not <laughs> like to list those people. I think <laughs> figured be, I would just try. I think it'll be far less than 15. I think it'll be five, but. I don't think we really know who lives in these districts yet. So if you have somebody like Trey Martinez-Fisher coming back, I mean, you know, we've heard these this sort of line that Democrats may try to play a more outsized role in the speaker's race. Um, will they be able to is the big they, question. You know, they should be able to. I mean, if you, if you think, and I'm only halfway there, but if you think that the speaker's race is going to turn on 
on ideological and factional issues rather than on um, relationships and psychology, then the Democrats are the biggest bloc in the House. The Republicans have more members, but they're divided into two or maybe three blocks. And I think the, the 55 Democrats are more likely to stick together than any 55 Republicans. I think it's, you know, um, the last time the Republicans tried to vote as a block in a speaker's race, vote in a caucus, and then come out and vote in a block, it blew up because the caucus didn't produce the result that the person who called the vote wanted. Right. Ken Paxton was running against Joe Strauss. He lost. He and a bunch of others peeled off. And as Tyler said, there's nothing to bind them to that vote. They're going to be most interested in how each of them individually is served um, in their ability to get things done in the House, in their ability to get committee chairmanships and the assignments they want more than they're going to be driven by my loyalty to this block or that block. Mm -hmm. Tyler, one more question for you. Uh, are there any policies besides abortion and gun control that will generally cause Republicans to vote against a Republican candidate? Immigration and taxes. I mm -hmm. wanted to say no to that question, but immigration <laughs> and taxes. There definitely. are two more. Yeah. Um, I think immigration is usually the number one and two right. issue for Republican primary voters and general election voters, frankly. But uh, those yeah, are those the. Uh, and Ross and Patrick, question um, from Ash. She wants to hear about the HD 46 runoff. That's Cole versus Vela. That's a great race. You know, the incumbent got, as you pointed out, less than 11%. That's, you know, that's pretty rare. Donna Dukes got skunked in that thing. And, you know, I was one of the people who thought that sort of residual name ID and the Duke's name might be enough to power her out of a, a complete, you know, dumpster fire number two, I guess. This is dumpster fire north. Arresty was dumpster fire south. Um, <laughs> But it didn't, and so you've got now this battle over whether this is really, to your point about census changes, a Hispanic district or a black district, and, and whether Chito Vela, who's relatively new to electoral politics, um, can beat Cheryl Cole, who's been on the Austin City Council. All right, well, we've just got about a minute and a half left, so why don't each of you tell uh, our listeners the race you think is gonna be the biggest nail biter in November. You only get one choice. <laughs> start over there yeah, <laughs> the ahead. biggest nail biter in november yeah let's just we like to make let's predictions just tell everybody here. This evan's is a not here question emily just right. made up evan's yeah. not here so I'll, you i'll can do a safe one the 23rd congressional district it's always competitive it's a 50 50 district uh will Hurd is uh just as popular in that district mm -hmm. as donald trump is unpopular currently mm -hmm. according to both republican and democratic polling and so if you meet them in the middle it could be a pretty a pretty close race depending on the democrat who gets out of the that's runoff. a great educated answer it's wow. a safe one though i'll take i'll take the <laughs> connie burton race um if, if trump has a tough year and it's not a commentary on Burton. I think, you know, I think Tyler's right. I think she's been a really good candidate. The Democrats have a strong candidate. It's a weak district. The demographics have shifted a little bit. And presidents often have tough midterms. Well, not to pick either of those. There's a lot on the menu. I would say CD32 yeah. CD will be a much bigger circus than anyone thinks in November. And everything in Dallas County is mm -hmm. going to be uh, a little crazier than we think from top to bottom. All right, folks, well, that's all the time we have. If you like listening to the TribCast every week, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings help us reach more listeners like you. And if you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to the Holdsworth Center, Pearson, and the Texas X's, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Ross, Patrick, Jolie, Tyler, and our producers, Justin and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Ooh, Talking. Talking.